We started a series last week that's up there called, It Really Works, Prayer. And uh, we talked about one thing last week about prayer, and we're going to talk about two things today about prayer. And can prayer work, and should prayer work every time for a believer? And the answer to that is yes. And sometimes we're told, well, you ask God, and he might say yes, and he might say no, and he might do this, and he might do that. But there's no scriptural truth to back that up. What's happened is sometimes we've failed, and therefore we just thought, well, because God's big, we'll blame it on him. He's got big shoulders, but that's not how it is in the Bible. So we want to look at some different things. So if you want, and if you have your Bible, you can open it to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. And we talked about how the context of this scripture that many are familiar with in Ephesians six is based on praying and walking by faith or getting and obtaining promises from God. And we're only going to read one part of it and do a tiny review, then we're going to move forward. Ephesians 6, verse 14. Do you believe you're going to hear today? It says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I've said this before, I didn't say it last week. You can read these scriptures and remove all the armor parts, and it will help you to see what he's trying to say. So you could read it like this, stand therefore having your waist or your core full of truth. In other words, your heart. Having put on righteousness. And so we saw last week the value and the first thing that's told us here was for all believers to renew their mind or not just think about the word, but get the word in their hearts for them to get it in the core of themselves. And we talked about how the imagination and how we ponder things is key to getting the truth inside of us. And we said it this way, people say, well, I don't have time to keep my mind on the promises and keep my mind on the word of God. And we said this, if you have time to worry, which we all knew how to do that before we even knew the Lord, and nobody had to get up and say, hey, you guys, we got a problem. I want you to worry about this. And then people say, I'm just so busy at work. I can't worry during the day. How many people say that, that worry? That's what I thought. None. Because people worry, and they get paid to do other stuff, and they're worrying at work, right? And then they could be watching a TV program, and they can be worrying while they're watching the program. You could be in church. Nobody here. And worrying, and what is worrying? It's imagining the problem. And that same energy can be applied to imagining and pondering God's word. We learned how to worry in the world. Let's do it God's way in the kingdom. And it will actually help get the word of God in us. So I told you I was going to review, then touch two things today. So the first one, turn to Ephesians, the first chapter. We'll come back over there to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. But Ephesians, the first chapter, and it's really connected to what we talked about last week. 
how that when you ponder the Word of God and you imagine the promises, it paints a new picture in you. It puts something in you. And right here, he tells us in this context how to get the Word in our core, in our heart also. And it says this in Ephesians 1.18. It says, and he's praying here, he said that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of his calling, and then he goes through this list of things that he wanted you to know. But here's what's important, is most translations of this verse say that the eyes or you know, the core, you know, your heart would gain light. In other words, you would see these things in your heart or in your core. When you pray, you are to pray, Lord, enlighten my heart. Somebody might say, well, what does it look like to have light in your heart? And I think that's so important because when we renew our minds, that's important. We know we're supposed to think certain things, but we can't stop every thought that comes. But we can sure change the core of how we see. And he said that your heart or your core would be full of light. And we know Psalm 119, 130 says that the entrance or when his word gets in your heart, it brings light and it brings inward understanding. Here's some things I know when you get light like this in your heart. Not up in your head, but I mean when you see, when you read, and you get light on the inside. What does light denote? If light comes, that means that maybe there was darkness there. Because if you turned on your phone and turned, you know, opened it up to open the Bible app, nobody in here went, oh, wow, more light. Unless the light is greater. But the lights are on in here. But if it was dark and light came, you'd go, oh, I can see. I can navigate. I know where the chairs are. And this is what I know by experience and what the Word says, that when light comes in your heart through the Word, you'll get excited. And it won't be emotional. As a matter of fact, problems maybe haven't changed yet. And you go, "Woo! look at that scripture. You see that? And others are like, yeah, that's wonderful. You ever been there? And you're like, no, look. It's not because you're seeing it in your head. It's because God has revealed it to your heart. If a blind person got sight, they would see things. Do you think they would be like, oh, this is wonderful? You know, the guy in the Bible, I was blind. Well, but, you know, I see now. No, he was like, I was once blind. And they were trying to say, well, we don't know about this. And, you know, they were accusing him. You know, we don't even know who you are and this. And, but people knew he was blind. And he said, listen, I don't care what you guys say. I once was blind. I now see. Now, he's talking about physical eyeball sight. But you can be blind or not see spiritually or in your heart. And then when you pray and ask the Lord, you can get things beyond your head 
you should have no reason for rejoicing, and you get excited. You go, whew, I see that. I understand that. And you can go tell other people, I see like that blind man, and they'll say, we don't know about you. But you're like, no, no, serious. I see. Everybody, every believer should see with their heart. And one of the keys is, is as you start seeing the truth, it will do something for you in your heart beyond your emotions that nothing else will do. And your heart was made to see that kind of light. So the Bible tells us that we're to pray and ask God to enlighten our hearts. In other words, we do ponder the truth. We do read the Word of God. We do sit in here. But we do have to understand this, that God can do something that nobody can do, and he can give light or reveal that inside of you. How many people have known a truth or known truths or were able to quote scriptures, but they didn't have joy? They didn't know what it was to be excited about the word. And they just say, well, that person's just so zealous. They're just... For some reason, they're more excited than other people. They'll get over that. Um, we don't want you to get over that. And really, if it's caused by seeing something in your heart that's right and of God, then we should never say, well, you'll get over that. No, we should be praying, Lord, they're probably seeing something I need to see with my heart too. Because, you know, we can all tell a joke, some better than others. You know, you ever heard people tell jokes and you're like, okay, this isn't even going to be funny. They've already butchered this. And, uh, but then there's other people who tell jokes and they always have a joke and, you know, you laugh and you chuckle. But it, this isn't that kind of joy. This is something beyond your emotions that is independent of circumstances, Meaning right in the middle of the problem or life, good times, bad times, you can see truth in your heart and it will do something for you that nothing else will. And we're called to get this light in us. So when we're talking about prayer and being effective in prayer, one of the first things we need to do is approach God based on the truth. But really, we need truth in our heart when we approach God. And so we can just ask him, Lord, enlighten my heart. Give me light by your spirit. Cause me to see things beyond my head. When I read, because there's one thing to get it up here. But I'll tell you what, there's one thing to put food in your mouth. There's another thing to have chocolate cake in your stomach. It tastes good in your mouth, but you get done, and you're like, whew. Some of you guys are acting totally innocent. Is it that nobody likes chocolate cake or something like that? But when you're full, you know you're full. And when you get the word in you, in your heart, and you see it, man, it is satisfying. It is exciting. You're like, man, glory to God, look at his word. Now, don't get excited unless you know. But if it does get in you, it should do something. And so we should ask, Lord... Give me light. Give everybody that saved light. Unveil the word of God to them.
because it's not just mental that you get it, but we are to renew our minds. So with that being said, we're going to go to point two. Ready? So point two, go back to Ephesians 6. Remember I said there's two points. That was number one. Number two is right here in Ephesians 6.14. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God in verse 13. And then it said, stand, verse 14, having girded your waist with truth or getting your core full of the truth of God's word. And that's why we said not only should we meditate, but we should pray and say, Lord, open it up. Show me, show my family, show people this. But then it says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Why do we need to understand righteousness? And is there a way to see it if it's a piece of armor that would be helpful to us? Why is it so important? Because if we stand before a holy God, he's perfect. He's, he's righteous. You with me? And uh, if we're going to stand in his presence and stand in the enemy's presence, because what does God do? And who is God? And what does the enemy do? We know one of the great things that the enemy does is he tries to entrap people and he accuses people regularly. Saved and unsaved. Thank you for those grunts. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a number of scriptures this morning, and I'm just going to go through them and uh, probably share a little thought, but I'm going to read them from the Amplified, which I'm not a big Amplified person, but because of how the Amplified does it, they, uh, it's from the New American Standard, but then they put little definitions of words. It will help paint a picture. You with me? And just to tell somebody, hey, righteousness is a gift, and, and if you're a Christian, you have it, that's great, but that doesn't always win battles. You know, if you go to court and somebody says, my client here is innocent, and you really are, and then somebody else gets up and, you know, the prosecutor gets up and just starts laying down stuff. I mean, sentence after sentence, stuff after stuff, even though you might really be innocent, you start listening to them long enough, you might think, yeah, maybe I am guilty. Look at all this. And the Bible said at first response, or when the first person responds, they seem right until the other one gives answer. That could help us watching the news. Just because somebody lays out a bunch of stuff against somebody, it is unwise to pass judgment until you hear both sides. Especially when we find out later bunches of it were lies. Because it can turn you toward or against somebody if you're not careful. So I'm going to read from the Amplified, and I'm going to go through different verses here. Galatians 3, verse 17 through 19. You ready? All right. This is what I mean. The law which came into existence 430 years later does not and cannot invalidate the covenant previously established by God. Now, what he's talking about 
is before the law came, there was a covenant made with Abraham that was to be an eternal covenant, an everlasting covenant. But then the law where the commandments came, came 430 years later. And it says that second covenant did not abolish the first one. So it says as to abolish the promise. For if the inheritance of what was promised, which was the first covenant, is based on observing the law, as these false teachers claim, it is no longer based on promise. However, God granted it to Abraham as a gift by virtue of his promise. Why then the law? What is the purpose of it? It was added after the promise to Abraham to reveal to the people their guilt because of transgressions. That is, to make people conscious of the sinfulness of sin. And the law was ordained through angels and delivered to Israel by the hand of a mediator, Moses, the mediator between God and Israel, to be in effect until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made, Jesus. Notice what started that second covenant was Moses, and what ended that second covenant was the coming of Jesus. But notice what existed the whole time, promise, promise a promise. And he said, you don't work for a promise. And he said, the law was not given to earn the promises. And so many times people think that the promises are to be earned once you become a Christian. Thank you. And so he said, what was the purpose of the law? It was to let people know just because you had these promises and you have all this good stuff that's given to you, it didn't change your spiritual nature. Notice this Galatians 3.21. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? And we're going to read 21, then 24, 25, and 26. He said, is the law or the Ten Commandments and the commandments then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a system of law had been given which could impart life, notice this phrase, then righteousness, right standing with God, would actually have been based on the law or works. Verse 24, with the result that the law has become a tutor and our disciplinarian to guide us to Christ so that we may be justified or declared righteous, that is, declared free from guilt and of sin and its penalty and placed in right standing with God by faith. That's how it reads in the Amplified. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the control and authority of a tutor and a disciplinarian, which here the reference is the law. For you who are born again have been reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, sanctified or set apart, and are all children of God. 
set apart for his purpose with full rights and privileges through faith in Christ Jesus. Notice that. I mean, that's nothing to be excited about. That frees people from guilt. You don't have to work for it. And so many people have made the law into something it was not ever meant to be. The law had its purpose to tell people, you need a savior. The promise was still promise. You still got it free. Notice Galatians 5, 3, and 4, and then we'll jump down to verse 7. Once more, I solemnly affirm to every man who receives circumcision, which we know is a work of the law, as a supposed requirement of salvation, that he is under obligation and is required to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. If you seek to be justified, that is declared free of the guilt and sin and its penalty and placed in right standing with God through the law. You have fallen from grace, for you have lost your grasp on God's unmerited favor and blessing. Verse 7, you were running the race well. Who has interfered and perverted or prevented you from obeying and following the truth? Isn't it interesting? The following of the truth in this context was this. These people had learned early on that right standing with God and eternal life was a total free gift, and the promises were a total free gift. Somebody had come along and started telling these people, you need to keep these different rules of the law if you really want the stuff God offered. And he said, you have fallen away from grace, God's unmerited free gift, because now you're working to try to get what he said is yours. No wonder the New Testament is full of scriptures that tell us to trust, not work. And he said, you've fallen away. You've severed yourself. You've cut yourself off from the free gift. And now you're over here working to get what you can't obtain through works. Unmerited, meaning there's no way you can earn this. Isn't it interesting what he calls false teaching and lies was, if you work hard enough, you can get it. You keep enough of the law, and you can get what God offers for free. I wonder if that kind of thinking would subconsciously disqualify Christians that are already qualified by God. Well, they just say, well, just I'm not, I wasn't good enough to get that. If I get better, I'll get that. That sounds like somebody's trying to work to get it. Now, I understand our heart is the soil by which the word grows, and we're commanded to keep certain activities out of our life because they can get in and crowd the word of God. But that doesn't change the free gift. That doesn't mean you're working to get it. That just means you're being careful about your own heart, the soil of your own heart. 
Notice this in Romans 4, verse 2. Is this helping? Romans 4, verse 2, and then we'll read verse 5. For if Abraham was justified, that is, acquitted from the guilt of sins, by works, those things he did that were good, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 5, but to the one who does not work, that is, the one who does not try to earn his salvation by good deeds, but believes and completely trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited to him as righteousness, right standing with God. Notice these truths that they're trying to get across to the early church which they need to get across to us, that this is not an issue of works that gets you in good standing. This is not works that makes you righteous. See, if you're always feeling guilty and always feeling condemned, you'll get beat up by the enemy. He'll pound you because you'll go, I'm just not good enough. I'm just not, you know, clean enough before God. And what really you're saying is, I haven't done enough. But in all reality, what can you do to get it? He Remember we read before, if there was a system of works that could do it, it would have come that way. But there is no system of good works that will give you eternal life and righteousness. And so when the enemy says you don't measure up, you could say, praise the Lord. I, I got it as a free gift. That's, how, that's the only way to measure up. The only way to be righteous in his sight is to say, Jesus, you're my Lord. I got it that way. I know that doesn't always help people because people think, if you say that, people are going to sin. I don't know about you, but I don't think Christians, if they're born again and truly have had an encounter with God, they just willfully want to sin. I think there's an inward struggle when they're out doing that stuff you with me? But I don't know about you. I think we've read a couple of verses and we're not even done yet. And it seems to keep going back to people getting entrapped by false teaching that tells them you got to work to get what was promised. To get in good standing, you got to work. To be declared just before God, you got to work. And the Bible is plainly saying no. Notice Romans 3.10, and then we'll read uh, 3.20 uh, through 24 in the Amplified. As it is written and forever remains written. Wow. This means this is an eternal truth. As it is written, verse 10, and forever remains written, there is none righteous None that meets God's standard, not even one. Verse 20, for no person will be justified free of guilt and declared righteous in his own sight by trying to do the works of the law. For through the law, we become conscious of sin and the recognition of sin directs us toward repentance but provides no remedy for sin. But now the righteousness of God has been clearly revealed 
independently and completely apart from the law or works, though it is actually confirmed by the law and the words and writings of the prophets. This righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all those Jews or Gentiles who believe and trust in him and acknowledge him as God's son. There is no distinction since all have sinned and continually, just hold it right there, continually, right there, continually fall short of the glory of God, but, and are being justified, declared free of the guilt of sin, made acceptable to God, and granted eternal life as a gift by his precious, undeserved grace through the redemption, the payment for our sins, which is provided in Christ Jesus. Boy, it doesn't get much clearer than that. Even repentance and turning away from your old ways does turns you from them, but does not make the problem go away that you're guilty on your own. But if you have Jesus, you are innocent. You are declared like you never sinned. And he's talking about a continuous action that you are kept in right standing as you have trust in Jesus. How many people say, well, I'll be more accepted by God when I do something? You know, in all reality, there's an element of pride in that. Want me to get down to business? What made the enemy fall? Pride. Self. What made him get all messed up? Self. We just need to realize God did this for us. He put us in good standing. You ready for one more? You can bear this. Romans 3.28 in the Amplified. For we maintain that an individual is justified by faith, distinctly apart from works of the law, the observance of which has nothing to do with justification, that is being declared free of the guilt of sin and made acceptable to God. I think I ought to read that again. For we maintain that an individual is justified, it's the same word righteous, by faith or trust, distinctly apart from works of the law, how many people think, well, I've done some wrong. I, I know I gave my life to the Lord. I know I'm saved. I've done a few wrong things. I hope when I get to heaven, the Lord will let me in. You're missing the point. You don't get in because of your good works. You get in because of the free gift. And so he said, for we maintain that an individual is justified, declared righteous, by faith, distinctly apart from works of the law, the observance of which has nothing to do with justification, that is, being declared free of the guilt of sin and made acceptable to God. 
well, how do I get free from guilt? How do I get accepted? How do I have this in my life? Super easy. Everybody who has already called on the name of the Lord for, to be Savior and Lord has this, whether you know it or not. Why is this such a big thing to know this stuff? Well, one, it's called the breastplate of righteousness. It covers the vital parts of your organs, your heart, your physical one, but it shows that it's a protective thing. How many Christians live beat up until they get to heaven, and you're not going to get more righteous and more declared innocent when you get there? Somebody said, great, I'm in trouble. No, you are misinformed. You are misinformed. You know, what if you did go to court and there was a big case against you and the judge is like, you're innocent. We declare you in good standing. You're just like you didn't sin, do wrong or anything. You know, there are some people who would sit there and think in their own mind, yeah, but I did this, this, and this. And they're like, well, judge, let me tell you something. I, I always like to be honest. You're talking about the judge of all mankind who said, you're innocent. You're like, well, just wait a minute, God. Did you see me this week? Did you see me on the way to church this morning? Did you see what I was just thinking five minutes ago? That's why it's called a gift. That's why it's him declaring it, not you declaring it. And that's why he makes things, we maintain. This is scripture so we could always read it. We maintain that you're not justified or declared righteous. It's distinctly apart from works. It is a thing you get when you get saved. So why is this important? Because the enemy would love to condemn and keep people under an air of condemnation. In other words, you can't ever work your way good enough to get free from condemnation. If you do, you have self-righteousness, not righteousness from the Lord. You just have to realize, when I received Jesus, the eternal life I got was a declaring of innocence. Not just of the past, but the present and the future. Period. He said he died once for all. The reason why animals had to be sacrificed year after year, it could only cover sin. It says his took the nature away out of people's spirits, gave them a new heart, and gives eternal life. And there is a declaration of right standing. We need to recognize, even in James 5, concerning prayer, there's a story about a man named Elijah. And it said Elijah prayed, and he, the Bible calls him a righteous man. And he prayed, and, he, and by his heartfelt prayer, because he was a righteous man, it says this, said he was able to stop it from raining. 
Then he prayed again and it rained again. It talks about how he was a righteous man. So a lot of people go, oh, you know, yeah, Elijah, that great man in the Old Testament. Go read about that righteous man in the Old Testament. His righteousness was not based on works. It was based on what God declared about him. Because you go read about him, the one who prayed down rain and stuff, he got all paranoid and ran. He got so depressed one time, he said, Lord, kill me. Just take me home. I'm the only one serving you. Let me die. Sounds like a righteous man, right? Maybe it's like some of the righteous people here. You mean that happened to him? Yeah, it happened to him and other things. He got all scared. He did some stuff, and then somebody came after him. He got all scared and ran. Yeah, Mr. Righteous Man, he was righteous. He was declared that by God. That's why he was effective in prayer. That's why he stood up at times and got bold. But what you need to understand is you're no different than anybody else in the Bible, and, but it's declared that you're righteous. And so you just have to realize when we talked last week about wrestling, this is where people get wrestling. The enemy will say, well, you're just not good enough to get that then guess what? Way back when we first started reading, remember the first covenant was a covenant based on promises, not works to get it. Do you know if you read Galatians 3, we're under that covenant of promise. And he said Christ became a curse so that the curses of disobedience wouldn't even come on us because he became a substitute so that it would be absolutely by promise, not works. You with me? So three things we need to take away from this, and I'm going to read one more verse. This cannot be earned. If you've received the Lord, you're declared innocent, clean, without guilt before God. When lies come at you and say you're guilty, you say, no, I'm washed. I'm moving on from that. If you're saved, I'm moving on. I'm not staying here. I'm moving on. The other thing is we need to realize this righteousness is a part of salvation. When you got Jesus, he makes you innocent without guilt before him, clean, and he gives you this justification or righteousness. Also, what we need to know is gaining this knowledge gives us victory or can help us walk in victory. Now I'm going to read one last verse. Turn to Proverbs 28. How many of you believe that you have Jesus? I mean, you know you received him. Then here's the thing. Then you have this, period. No arguments, period. I mean, there's so much said right there that how could you argue? I mean, he gives so many different angles about people trying to obtain this by works and doing good and keeping the law and being perfect, that he said, you cannot, it is impossible to get it that way. Therefore, the Lord paid for it so you could get it for free when you receive him. You know, have you ever had a purse or a, if you're a lady, or a wallet and you're a guy and you looked in there and you went digging in there and all of a sudden you found money and you're like, I didn't even know that was in there. 
You know, sometimes we need to dig and find out what's in here because then we find out it's how he looks at us and what is true. So Proverbs 28, and we'll read this verse, verse 1, says the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Let me read that again. The wicked flee when no one pursues them, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Isn't that an interesting thing? But what if a Christian didn't know they were righteous and thought, well, I'm just wicked, and therefore they would be fleeing and shouldn't be, and they would need to realize, listen, God made me righteous, I can be as bold in the things of God as a lion. Not timid, not intimidated, not obnoxious, just in case, but meaning I can be bold about the things of God because this you don't work for. Sorry, if you were looking to come to find out something you could really do, you could do this, believe the word and be set free from guilt. This will change how you pray. Because you won't be going to God going, Oh, Lord, I know I need this, but oh, I've just been so bad. You can come boldly. 